Before I start today's episode, I wanted to let you all know that I've posted images of the artifacts I will be discussing in today's episode, as well as previous episodes, on the Our Prehistory Patreon website. Also, for patrons, I've created timelines and maps to accompany each episode. So if you've been wondering what still bay points, ochre engravings, and shell beads from the Middle Stone Age look like, or you'd just like to support the podcast, head over to patreon.com slash ourprehistory, link in the description. The hill rose up, like a gray rocky island above a sea of grass. At the base of this hill, rock shelters provided refuge for a band of 30 humans early one morning. They had spent two days traversing dry, open plains to get here, because they knew that the rainy season was coming to an end. They were far from the abundant marula and baobab fruits and the consistently flowing rivers of the woodlands. But the end of the rains meant that a great opportunity was just over the horizon. While most of the band sat in the shade of the rock shelter, a teenage boy had climbed to the top of the hill to keep a lookout. To the south, over the pale grasses, he watched for signs of wildebeest. Thousands of these animals passed by this hill every year on their migration back to their dry season refuge. It was still early in the morning when the sound of the boys yelping reached the adults in the rock shelters. They jumped from their repose and grabbed their spears. Unlike other times of the year, this hunt would require the participation of the whole group, men and women. Some ran towards the wildebeest, encircling the herd and driving it into the trap, a bottleneck between the steep ridge of the hillside and a wooded ravine, where the most skilled and courageous hunters awaited ready to ambush. As the panicked creatures ran into this tight passage, they collided with each other, trying to make it to the few escape routes. Within just a few meters of these animals, a young man stood, spear in hand behind a tree, waiting for the right moment. Seeing his opportunity, he stepped out from behind the trees and hurled his spear into the chest of a trapped wildebeest. Several other hunters did the same, but were careful to quickly retreat to avoid the animal's flailing horns. Eventually, the chaos of the herd passed and the band regrouped. On the ground lay seven wildebeest, enough to feed them for weeks. The band would work together the rest of the day, cutting away the skin and meat from the bodies, carrying most of it back to the rock shelters. Pieces of the carcasses would be left behind at the kill site alongside the bleached skeletons of years gone by. This band lived around 60,000 years ago in the highland plains of Kenya. These mass tactical hunts were only one strategy of many deployed by humans to survive in the grasslands of eastern Africa towards the end of the Middle Stone Age.
Welcome to Our Prehistory, Episode 5, Middle Stone Age of Tropical Africa. In our last episode, we explored the origin of distinct human cultures in southern Africa starting around 73,000 years ago. At the southern extreme of the continent, forger bands were united in using specific styles of stone tools and symbolic objects in the form of engravings and shell beads. In today's episode, we move north to tropical Africa into the forests and grasslands surrounding the equator. Our exploration of this region will take us to the end of the Middle Stone Age, around 40,000 years ago. As we will see, human life in tropical Africa followed a slightly different trajectory than in other regions. Cultural complexity, like that of the Still Bay and Howison's port cultures, arose in eastern Africa much later than similar developments in southern Africa. The origin of these cultural changes is critical to understanding the evolution of modern human behavior. Although human culture remained rather simple during the Middle Stone Age, the archaeology of tropical Africa reveals a fascinating diversity of lifeways with which foragers overcame challenges to their survival. Tropical Africa can roughly be divided into western, central, and eastern regions. In today's episode, we will treat these regions separately because, as we will see, there were fundamental differences in human behavior across the tropics. We will begin today in western Africa, where we have less archaeological information about the Middle Stone Age than any other part of the continent. In this region, which includes tropical forests and grasslands between the Atlantic coast and the Sahara Desert, the earliest dated Middle Stone Age tools are from about 150,000 years ago in Senegal and Mali, on the western end of the continent. In Senegal, the oldest tools are unlike those from anywhere else in Africa, including unique scrapers and denticulate tools, along with a few prepared cores and large cutting tools. This strange mix might reflect a local human population isolated from other parts of the continent, still using some Acheulean tools. By 60,000 years ago, people in Mali and Senegal were using tools that included many prepared cores and points similar to Middle Stone Age tools from other parts of Africa. In fact, leaf-shaped bifacial points were common. In Mali, tool styles alternated over time, probably reflecting movement of different groups of people as the Sahara expanded and contracted with changing climate. Until more research is reported, we won't be able to say when the Middle Stone Age and early Homo sapiens actually arrived in Western Africa, and how it compared to other regions. Central Africa is the area including and surrounding the Congo River Basin. While many Middle Stone Age tools have been discovered there, few have been dated, making its chronology difficult to reconstruct. We know that this region was occupied by hominins before 250,000 years ago, who used the most unique type of all Middle Stone Age tools. Called Lupembin tools, they were composed primarily of core axes and long dagger-like points. I introduced these tools two episodes ago and mentioned that the makers of the Lupembin were the earliest hominin colonizers of the Congo Basin, 
these hominins were probably early Homo sapiens, and they made some of their tools using prepared cores. Core axes and dagger points were much larger than tools used in other parts of Africa during the Middle Stone Age, and might be an adaptation to exploit the resources of dense, wet tropical forests. The stone axes could have been used to cut down small trees and shape wooden tools. The long dagger points were probably used to make spears, but could have also served to cut and harvest the dense vegetation of the forest. Based on the reconstructed distribution of tropical ecosystems during the Middle Stone Age and the location of these distinctive tools, we can conclude that the Lupemban people lived not only in the forests, but also in the surrounding savannas. In fact, more archaeological sites in western and central Africa have been dated to drier climatic periods when forest area would have become fragmented. This suggests that life may have been easier for humans when there was more access to forest edges, able to forage for resources in different ecosystems. Also, the Congo Basin may have acted as a refuge for people from other regions when conditions were drier than normal. Lupembin tools represent an amazingly stable technology, used in some form between 250,000 years ago and 12,000 years ago. To be clear, there are huge gaps in our knowledge between the start and end of the Lupembin, and variation in tool shapes shows that this toolkit was not static over time but the fundamental components of this technology demonstrate a remarkable continuity over hundreds of thousands of years. Core axes and dagger points, along with prepared core tools, must have been an optimal toolkit, passed down through generations of surprisingly stable populations. In fact, there's interesting genetic support for this scenario. Pygmies, who are modern foragers in the forests of Central Africa, come from one of the earliest genetic lineages of our species, indicating that their ancestors were genetically isolated from other human populations for vast stretches of time. So it's possible that the persistent, unique Lupembin belonged to the ancestors of the current inhabitants of the Congo Basin. The vast majority of archaeology in tropical Africa has been conducted in Ethiopia, Kenya, and Tanzania. So the rest of today's episode will focus mostly on the prehistory of Eastern Africa. Because of the larger number of dated archaeological sites there, we can learn a lot about how humans use the landscape to survive. This region receives less rain than the Congo Basin, and so is dominated by grasslands, tree-spotted savannas, and shrublands. The only large forests are found in two highland plateaus, one in Ethiopia and another in Kenya. Both highlands are cut through by the Great Rift Valley of Eastern Africa, which is a deep tectonic trench running for more than 3,000 kilometers from Ethiopia in the north to Malawi and Mozambique in the south. At the bottom of this trench are many large lakes, which served as key sources of water and other resources for many animals, including humans. It is in the highlands and near the lakes of the Rift Valley that most Middle Stone Age tools and human fossils in eastern Africa have been found. 
these areas would have been near the edge of forest, and so it seems like most human bands chose to live along ecosystem boundaries, rather than wandering deep into the expanse of grasslands. The climate during long stretches of the Middle Stone Age was drier than today, and life in the grasslands would have been hard. Water was scarce as streams only flowed in the wet season, and animals in arid grasslands tend to aggregate in large, migratory herds. On top of that, stone for tools is rare in flat topography. To avoid these adversities, humans mostly retreated to the margins of forests and lakes. Edible fruit and nut-bearing plants would have been abundant in forests. These could have been supplemented with edible roots, more common in grasslands. Animals of the forests and lakesides would have been reliably available to hunt year-round. In addition, volcanic activity along the rift valley meant that obsidian and other high-quality stones for tool-making could have been found easily in the highlands. Although humans in eastern Africa were concentrated along the Rift Valley, there were certain periods of the Middle Stone Age when the geographic distribution of our species expanded. One of these instances was around 130,000 years ago, as global temperatures rose during the last interglacial period, and eastern Africa received more rain. The arid steppes and deserts that had dominated the lowlands of Ethiopia and Somalia were replaced by moist savannas, interspersed with patches of trees. The improving environmental conditions are reflected in the archaeological record. An increase in stone tools dated to the interglacial suggests that the human population in the region grew and spread beyond the mountains and lake edges. Between 130 and 80,000 years ago, foragers occupied the lowland plains they had once avoided. As our species expanded geographically, they also adopted a wider range of behaviors. This is seen most clearly in the growing variety of techniques used to nap stones and an increasing diversity in the finished form of tools. Most of these were similar to those made since the beginning of the Middle Stone Age but the combination of tools adopted by each foraging group varied widely. Most groups made scrapers used to butcher carcasses and process hides from hunted animals, but these tools took on many shapes. Points were ubiquitous, but the shape and level of precision used to make them varied between bands. A few groups even occasionally made heavy-duty tools from cores instead of flakes. During this wet interglacial phase, the numerous variations of prepared core techniques used to make tools illustrates the technological inconsistency between groups. This diversity probably reflects adaptations to different environments as bands dispersed out of the highlands. Within all this variation, archaeologists have identified three signs that human lifeways were becoming more sophisticated as the human population expanded around 130,000 years ago. First, tools gradually became smaller. Before the interglacial, in eastern Africa, the average point was 5.5 centimeters long, and after that, it fell to only 4 centimeters. 
As we will see later, smaller tools probably reflect more complex hunting weapons and more efficient use of raw material. Second, after 130,000 years ago, it became more common for groups to be in possession of high-quality rock originating far away from where they were foraging. Fine-grained stones like obsidian and chert were being transported between 100 and 300 kilometers from their source. This implies greater access to these sources, probably through exchange with neighboring groups. Third, toolkits dominated by large cutting tools completely disappeared. Up until 150,000 years ago, Acheulean hand axes were still the principal type of tool made by some hominin groups in eastern Africa. The final disappearance of Acheulean tools is often associated with the extinction of archaic hominin species in the region, although we don't actually know when species like Homo heidelbergensis finally disappeared. But clearly, the last interglacial was a period when our species expanded geographically, perhaps at the expense of other hominins in Africa, and they were gradually developing a growing repertoire of technological strategies. Beyond the diversity of stone tools after 130,000 years ago, human behavior in eastern Africa was also quite varied in terms of foraging strategies. Some of these lifeways demonstrate a level of planning rarely seen at the start of the Middle Stone Age. Planning can be seen in how they moved around the landscape. Some groups clearly established home bases in protected locations, often under rock shelters or on hillsides with good views of the surrounding landscape. They probably chose these campsites in order to keep an eye on herds of animals and to be near a source of fresh water. We know that these locations were home bases because a wide variety of remains are found at these sites, including stone tools, animal bones, ochre, ash, and charcoal, suggesting that multiple activities took place there. From these home bases, they undertook forays to collect rock and plant material and to hunt. Thousands of years after they made these excursions, we can still see the evidence. For example, at quarry sites, where they obtained high-quality rocks, archaeologists find the flaking debris from manufacturing tools, but no other type of remain. Other forays were made to hunting camps, where hunters spent time, sometimes overnight, butchering their prey. Hunting camps are identified by large densities of animal bones, including parts of the body without much meat, such as head and feet, that were discarded and left behind. Alongside these bones, hunting camps often have signs of fire and stone tools used in the processing of the animals, like scrapers. The most common foray would have been to forage for plant food, but these trips leave behind little evidence. Every so often, a band would need to relocate to a new central camp as local resources became depleted and as seasons changed. What archaeologists have observed is that during the second half of the Middle Stone Age, human groups in eastern Africa adopted different hunting strategies and mobility patterns depending on the environments they inhabited. For example, in the highland savannas of central Tanzania around 64,000 years ago, 
humans focused on hunting large to medium-sized antelope, including impala and gazelle, along the margins of grassland and woodland. Hunters selected large, prime-age individuals, and after butchering the animal, they transported pieces with large amounts of meat, such as the legs, back to their home base to be shared with the rest of their band. This type of systematic processing of carcasses was practiced across eastern Africa between 100 and 50,000 years ago. We know this because at home bases, long bones from legs are frequent, but the meatless skulls are rare. In addition, at both the hunting camps and home bases, most bones were cracked open to eat the marrow inside. This spongy substance was a vital source of fat and other vitamins for hunter-gatherers. The selective transport of meat to a central camp was also practiced by foragers in the northern foothills of the Ethiopian mountains, at a cave called Pok Epik. However, foragers living there did not only focus on large antelope, but also hunted smaller animals using finely made elongated leaf-shaped points. From the cave, they conducted hunting excursions to a local spring and the surrounding arid grasslands. They hunted wildebeest, gazelle, desert warthogs, zebra, and smaller animals like dwarf antelope, monkeys, hares, and hyrax. From this location, they also had access to more humid environments and varied plant foods by moving up into the mountains. The large number of small animals hunted here is reminiscent of the hunters of the Howison port culture, who lived slightly earlier in southern Africa. As at the southern tip of the continent, the hunters at Pok Epic may have been using complex hunting strategies, including snares or traps. Towards the end of the Middle Stone Age, some bands even developed a hunting strategy that could be applied successfully in the most arid of grasslands. This revolved around seasonal hunts of migrating animals who were in search of green grass as weather changed from wet to dry. People took advantage of these large moving herds by camping on hills overlooking migration routes. In some cases, they even conducted mass hunts, which indicate the use of coordinated tactics. In one case, in the open savanna of southern Kenya, hunters used a bottleneck between a steep ridge and woodland to ambush and kill large numbers of an extinct species of antelope that was especially adapted to extremely dry grasslands. At another site, in an ancient riverbed, archaeologists have found bone beds composed exclusively of an extinct relative of wildebeest. A group of humans probably drove the migrating herd into a stream where they dispatched at least 27 individual animals in a single hunt. Mass hunting techniques required cooperation between many hunters, with some driving the prey into natural topographic bottlenecks. The skills of these grassland foragers is also evident by the consistent hunting across eastern Africa of extremely dangerous African buffalo and the even larger extinct giant buffalo. How exactly they killed such large, aggressive prey is still unknown. People who hunted large animals on the border of grasslands and forests would have adopted a relatively mobile lifestyle, especially when pursuing migratory animals. 
life was quite different near lakes or large rivers, where groups likely moved their campsites less often because the abundance of resources within a smaller area. In fact, archaeological sites on the banks of lakes from eastern Africa, dated to the Middle Stone Age, tend to have denser accumulation of artifacts, suggesting habitation over longer periods. At lake and river margins, they could have obtained fish, mollusks, and a wide diversity of plant food. In fact, two sites along rivers, one in the northern rift of Ethiopia and another in the Serengeti of Tanzania, have significant concentration of fish bones. Cut marks and burn marks on the bones prove that humans were responsible for these accumulations. Common at both sites are catfish, which spawn in shallow waters during the rainy season and are especially vulnerable to spearing because they're so slow-moving. Some African catfish are huge, exceeding 2 meters in length, and would have been an easy source of fat and protein. One site in particular demonstrates how this adaptation to lake margins during the Middle Stone Age led to technological innovation. Katanda is an archaeological site in a river valley near one of the large lakes in the western branch of the Rift Valley. This site in the Democratic Republic of Congo is very near to where the rainforests of Central Africa met the savannas of the east. The remains of three campsites have been dated to 90,000 years ago. At that time, forest ran along the river, but was surrounded by savanna. On the bank of this river, people made intricate bone tools, including barbed spear points, made from long rib or leg bones of large animals. The bones had been splintered and then shaped by grinding them against a stone. Along one edge, they cut curved barbs, and at the end opposite the point, they added notches to facilitate the attachment to a spear. These points are remarkable evidence of human ingenuity deep in our past. A considerable investment of time was required to manufacture these points. Based on the large number of catfish bones at these sites, it is likely that these barbed points were for spearfishing. Such formalized bone tools are often associated with later stages of human development, after the Middle Stone Age. In fact, these are the only formal bone tools discovered in tropical Africa that date before 50,000 years ago. Sadly, most bone that is 90,000 years old has probably decayed by now, leaving us to wonder if these barbed points were part of a custom linked to the people of Katanda or whether this practice was widespread among fishing groups in tropical Africa. In contrast to the Lupemban coraxes and daggers of Central Africa, the leaf-shaped points of the Still Bay, and the crescents of the Howison's port, there was no unifying style of stone tool in Eastern Africa during the Middle Stone Age. Instead, as I have already mentioned, this region stands out for its high technological diversity. Forager bands rarely use the same techniques to make the same types of tools. This probably reflects different subsistence strategies and environmental circumstances, such as the type of rock that was available. The variety of stone tools also implies an absence of strong cultural ties between foragers living across the landscape. 
cultural norms are an important force in the imposition of a particular style of stone tool. The Eastern African pattern of variety would hold all the way until the end of the Middle Stone Age. That being said, there are a few common elements that link some foraging groups from Ethiopia to Tanzania. First, many groups retouched the edges of their stone points into specific shapes, two of which were quite common during the Middle Stone Age. The first was a point that was nearly a perfect equilateral triangle, and the second was a leaf-shaped bifacial point similar to those made during the Sil Bay of Southern Africa. However, unlike the culture far to the south, neither of these point forms were adopted in a widespread or consistent manner. East African points were often quite small, between 3 and 5 centimeters long on average, and were probably used as tips on hunting spears as points were in other parts of Africa. But tiny obsidian points from Ethiopia are thought by some to have been small enough to be made into projectile weapons, specifically darts propelled by a dart thrower. Dart throwers are a simpler technology than bows and arrows that throw larger projectiles less effectively than a bow. No firm evidence of projectile weapons in the form of impact fractures or usewear has been found. The lack of clear regional stone tool styles coincides with an absence of evidence of symbolic objects, with the exception of ochre during the Middle Stone Age. No engravings or beads have been found so far in tropical Africa during this period. It is possible that the evidence of symbolic behavior has simply decayed in the past 100,000 years, and that our understanding of stone tool styles over this vast period is too coarse to discern patterns that existed. On the other hand, this absence may also reflect a lack of modern behavior critical to more complex forms of human social organization. The lack of cultural traditions among human groups in Eastern Africa is surprising because there is strong evidence that forager groups met with each other to exchange valuable objects. Chemical analysis of obsidian, which can precisely identify its source location, shows that after 130,000 years ago, this valuable material for tools was traded over long distances. Archaeologists believe it is unlikely that people during the Middle Stone Age would have traveled more than 100 kilometers, which is outside the typical range of hunter-gatherers, just to collect stone. And yet obsidian in Tanzania, Kenya, and Ethiopia has been found up to 300 kilometers from its source, suggesting that networks of exchange were emerging around each source and radiating in many directions. Near the source, obsidian was used to make most tools, but at campsites more than 200 kilometers away, usually only a handful of tools were made with the black volcanic glass. Interestingly, exchange networks arose between foraging bands without a visible culture uniting them. While networks for exchanging obsidian linked groups over a few hundred kilometers, we also find evidence from the Middle Stone Age of even longer distance connections and possibly even migrations linking different regions of Africa. 
an especially important crossroads during this period was the area around Lake Victoria, the largest lake in Africa and the source of the Nile River. Throughout the Middle Stone Age, people originating from various regions moved into and inhabited the Lake Victoria Basin. First, people from Central Africa, using Lupemban tools, moved into the basin. This marks the furthest eastern extent of the Lupemban culture. These tools are not dated, but the people using them might have expanded into this region during a wet climate, when tropical forests spread to the western edge of the lake, possibly during the last interglacial 130,000 years ago. Not only were people arriving at Lake Victoria from the west, but it also seems that people from the central Kenyan rift migrated into the lake basin during especially dry climatic periods between 100 and 50,000 years ago. We know this because obsidian from the Kenyan rift 250 kilometers to the east of Lake Victoria are found with arid grassland adapted animals, unlike the modern fauna in the area. Along with the dry grasslands came people from the east, who were accustomed to living at the margins of this habitat, and who had trading relationships with groups near the rift. Thus, the prehistory of Lake Victoria shows that human populations, much like other animal species, followed their preferred type of habitat as grasslands and forests expanded and contracted. Not only is there evidence of east-west migrations of human foraging bands within tropical Africa, but also two separate archaeological signatures of movement into tropical Africa from the north. First, a distinctive tool type which originated and became the distinguishing characteristic of the Maghreb of northwestern Africa during the Middle Stone Age has also been found at two sites in Senegal, south of the Sahara. These tools are called Atyrian and have been found in small numbers in Senegal among otherwise local tools. This means that people from North Africa moved south, across the Sahara Desert into western Africa. They were probably only able to do this during one of the humid phases, such as between 84 and 72,000 years ago, when the desert transformed into grassland with flowing rivers. Once in western Africa, these groups must have mixed with local populations or lived near enough to them to pass on their style of stone tool. On the other side of the continent, a separate movement of people brought a different unique style of point into eastern Africa. These are called Nubian points, and they originated along the Nile River. People using Nubian points must have migrated south, because around 100,000 years ago, Nubian points show up in small numbers in the Rift Valley of Ethiopia. In fact, this style of point was still being used in the highlands of Ethiopia and the coast of Somalia between 50 and 40,000 years ago. This pattern suggests that local groups adopted the technology of people moving south from the Nile River. Even one site next to Lake Victoria had a Nubian point, suggesting that the impact of this southern migration reached the source of the Nile. These human migrations are especially relevant because the period between 100 and 50,000 years ago was one in which genetic studies say was very important for the demographics of our species. 
many human lineages originated during the end of the Middle Stone Age, suggesting that certain populations within Africa grew in numbers, spread across the landscape, and possibly replaced other populations. The populations resulting from this spread were the ancestors of the people currently living in eastern and western Africa, and those who migrated out of this continent. Unfortunately, the limited archaeological remains from this period make it difficult to determine the ultimate origin of these groups. Sadly, the fossil record from the end of the Middle Stone Age is also not much help in answering this question. Only a few sites that date between 150,000 years ago contain parts of human skeletons. Interestingly, analyses of these bones indicate that all the people living during the end of the Middle Stone Age still retained some primitive facial and cranial features, showing that human evolution had not yet reached our modern morphology. One of the skeletons found at this time presents a rare glimpse into the mortuary practices of these people. The earliest known intentional burial of a human in Africa took place in the coastal forests of Kenya at a cave called Panga Ya Saidi 78,000 years ago. Here, a two-year-old child was placed in a pit within a cave. Analyses of the skeleton indicates that the child was laid on their side, with his or her knees flexed, head rested, and body wrapped in a perishable material that has since decayed. Burial is thought to be a key indication of modern human behavior, and of all the Homo sapiens bones dated before this point, none are believed to have been placed in deliberately dug graves. Interestingly, the next human burial from Africa after this is also of a young child, a five-month-old, buried with a shell bead at Border Cave in South Africa. These are the only two known human burials from the Middle Stone Age of Africa, and they come near the end of this archaeological period, so it's very hard to make conclusions about the regularity of this practice at the time. Starting around 50,000 years ago, human foragers living in eastern Africa undergo a mysterious and dramatic shift in behavior. The consistent use of levallois and other prepared cores to make side scrapers and points which define the Middle Stone Age finally came to an end. This is what archaeologists refer to as the transition to the Late Stone Age, during which different techniques for making tools and different tool shapes were adopted. Along these new tools, we start to see the widespread creation of a symbolic material culture that was largely absent during the Middle Stone Age. Since this transition may be connected to the out-of-Africa migration occurring around the same time, it is important to understand the nature of this cultural transformation. This cultural shift began in the central rift valley of Tanzania and Kenya. The first signs of this transformation are from 55,000 years ago at the Mumba rock shelter near Lake Ayasi in Tanzania. Humans had used this cave as a home base since 105,000 years ago. During the Middle Stone Age, the inhabitants of Mumba rock shelter 
like other hominin groups in eastern Africa, made points and scrapers using disc-shaped prepared cores. But starting 55,000 years ago, the groups that used this cave adopted a new type of technology. Instead of making stone tools primarily from prepared cores, they used the bipolar technique, in which cores are struck from above with a hammer stone, while being held in place on an anvil stone below. Bipolar napping is a simple technique, but allows for a more efficient use of the core, extracting more tools from it than you can with prepared cores. This was not a new invention. Bipolar napping had been used occasionally across Africa during the Middle Stone Age. But here at Mumba and other sites nearby, bipolar napping would become the dominant technique to make stone tools, and people would apply this technique to produce tools that were much different than those from the Middle Stone Age. First, the new tools were even smaller than those from the end of the Middle Stone Age, mostly less than 3 centimeters long. Archaeologists refer to such small tools as microliths. Second, triangular and leaf-shaped points and round scrapers that were ubiquitous during the Middle Stone Age were replaced by blades, which are generally long and rectangular. During this transition, it would become common for blades to be further shaped into backed geometric tools, much like the crescents of the Howison's port of southern Africa. As I mentioned in the last episode, one benefit of these backed geometric tools is the flexibility they provided as components in specialized hafted tools, possibly including arrows. None of the technologies adopted at Mumba were new to prehistory, but importantly, these changes mark a permanent shift in human culture in this region. Foragers in the Central Rift Valley will continue producing microliths for tens of thousands of years. The Middle Stone Age was over at Mumba Rock Shelter. The transformation from prepared cores and points to bipolar flaking and microliths occurred gradually in the Central Rift Valley. By 49,000 years ago, the inhabitants of Mumba were primarily making backed geometric tools. Over the next 10,000 years, this technological shift spread to sites north and south of Mumba along the Rift Valley, including sites more than 200 kilometers away. It's likely that this change spread along obsidian exchange networks. During the transition, the two technologies were often used together, suggesting that foragers were gradually deciding to adopt this new technology. By 40,000 years ago, the transformation here was complete, and people were primarily using backed geometric tools and few points. While a change in stone tools by itself might not be of revolutionary importance in human history, the appearance of symbolic behavior in Eastern Africa, along with bipolar napping and microliths, suggests that something truly important was going on. Starting about 50,000 years ago, human groups at several different sites in the Central Rift Valley start making disc-shaped beads out of ostrich eggshell. These are circular and tiny, one centimeter or less in diameter, with a hole drilled through the middle. As with the shell beads from earlier periods in southern Africa, they were probably strung together and hung as some form of body ornamentation. 
unlike southern Africa where shell beads have only been found at two sites from the Still Bay period, beads that are more than 40,000 years old have been found at at least five sites just in the central rift of eastern Africa. Last episode, we saw that more than 10,000 years earlier, ostrich eggshell had been engraved with geometric patterns in southern Africa. Here, in eastern Africa, ostrich eggshell beads appear as a new type of symbolic use with this resource. Personal ornamentation points to changing social dynamics within this obsidian exchange network during the end of the Middle Stone Age, perhaps more frequent communication between groups. Among modern-day hunter-gatherers in Africa, ostrich eggshell beads are often given as gifts to members of other groups in order to maintain friendly relationships. The appearance of ostrich eggshell beads was not the only sign of growing symbolic culture. The use of ochre and grindstones to process this pigment became very common during this transitional period across much of eastern Africa. Polk Epic Cave in Ethiopia contains small stone balls from this period that were dipped in red ochre paint and have been interpreted as stamps used to apply a pattern to human skin or clothing. Interestingly, some sites in the central rift have especially large deposits of ochre and beads from this period, suggesting that certain locations were specialized for the production of items of cultural significance. At some sites, symbolic objects appeared before the technological transformation took place, whereas at other sites, people adopted the bipolar flaking and microlithic tools before beads. So symbolic behavior and technological innovation were part of the same cultural transformation, but probably originated in different locations. The central rift valley of Kenya and Tanzania represents the epicenter of a technological and social transformation, but one that took place over thousands of years. So you might be wondering what was happening at the same time in other parts of eastern Africa. The answer is that the late Stone Age transition to microlithic tools followed different trajectories in other areas. For example, on the eastern coast of Kenya at Panga Yasaidi, people adopted back geometric crescents briefly around 48,000 years ago, when people were doing so at Mumba. But then, the inhabitants of this cave reverted back to Levallois core preparation and point production until around 33,000 years ago, when they adopted a combination of points and backed geometrics. People near Lake Victoria were slow to adopt microlithic technology, only doing so 10,000 years after the transition occurred 300 kilometers to the east. Farther to the north, in the highlands of Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa, it seems like only a few groups adopted the new technology from the south. Of the archaeological sites in Ethiopia dated between 50 and 40,000 years ago, only two include back geometric tools and bipolar napping, while at several other sites people kept using Middle Stone Age tools. In fact, Backed geometric tools will not become common in the Ethiopian highlands until after 18,000 years ago. 
Although the technological transformation was not comprehensive across Eastern Africa, new forms of symbolic expression generally did become more common starting around 50,000 years ago, but they took on different forms than in the Central Rift. In the highlands of Ethiopia, ostrich eggshell was blackened in a fire and then engraved with geometric patterns, while at Pok Epik, people made hundreds of beads out of snail shells. At Panga Yasaidi on the Kenyan coast, people made beads out of seashells instead of ostrich eggshell. Clearly, something about the social life of Eastern Africans was changing, leading them to express their identities in new ways. This widespread creation of symbolic objects is one trait that defines modern human societies. What makes the transition to the Late Stone Age so important in human prehistory is that it was not just a local or regional phenomenon. Backed geometric microliths, along with symbolic behavior, spread across Africa, and most humans on the continent would eventually adopt microlithic tools. The initial speed and area over which the Late Stone Age spread is truly remarkable. In South Africa, the earliest transition to bipolar napping, backed microlithic tools, and ostrich eggshell beads of the late Stone Age occurred 45,000 years ago at Border Cave, and this cultural change became widespread in the south between 40 and 20,000 years ago. Some forger bands in the Congo Basin of Central Africa used microlithic tools by 40,000 years ago, and they became more common after that. The earliest microlithic tools so far discovered in Western Africa are less than 15,000 years old from Senegal and Mali. So the current evidence tells us that by 40,000 years ago, when the transition to microlithic tools was just finished in the central rift, microliths were already being used thousands of kilometers away in southern and central Africa. No technological innovation had spread over such a wide area since the beginning of the Middle Stone Age, much less within only a few thousand years. We don't know whether migrations of people took this technology around the continent, or whether the success of microlithic tools led to their spread from one group to another. However, at Border Cave in South Africa, the Late Stone Age appears to be a gradual transition by local groups. To be clear, there were many human groups across the continent who preferred to continue using the prepared cores, points, and scrapers of the Middle Stone Age. For example, in Senegal, Middle Stone Age coraxes, Levallois points, and denticulates were used just 11,000 years ago. So although the initial spread was impressive, the wholesale adoption of the Late Stone Age technology was a gradual process that took place over tens of thousands of years. As you may have already noticed, there are striking similarities between the transition to the Late Stone Age and the Howison's port culture of Southern Africa, which, as we saw last episode, existed from 65 to 59,000 years ago. This means that the Howison's port culture ended about 5,000 years before the Mumba culture started 3,000 kilometers to the north. In both cases, there was a shift from points 
to geometric-backed tools and an appearance of symbolic objects. You can look at the Howison's port as almost a false start of the late Stone Age. It's interesting to ponder why the Howison's port period did not spark the late Stone Age transition 20,000 years earlier than it actually happened. So if the Howison's port was local and temporary, what explains the widespread and enduring success of bipolar napping, microlithic tools, and symbolism around 40,000 years ago? There currently is no consensus among academics as to the cause of this technological and social transformation. One theory is that the transition to small tools represents a change from hunting with spears to hunting with bows and arrows. Bow hunting, especially when combined with poison-tipped arrows as used by many modern foragers, would have been a crucial technological revolution. However, we don't have concrete evidence that early microliths were used as arrowheads. Another theory argues that the late Stone Age transformation marks some evolutionary shift in human brains, which allowed them to outcompete other human groups using superior technology and social cooperation. The appearance of beads might reflect the development of more complex social lives, facilitated by greater communicative abilities and cognitive function. One problem with this theory is that there is no genetic evidence for the expansion and replacement of humans across the continent at this time. Another interesting theory does not require any genetic changes in humans, but a change in human demography. This hypothesis argues that the technological and social changes starting around 50,000 years ago were the result of growing population sizes of human foragers. There is evidence for such a growth from increases in the density of stone tools at a few Eastern African sites, and the general increase in the number of discovered sites dated to this period. To this, we can add the fact that genetic data reflects increases in African populations between 70 and 30,000 years ago. While this evidence is tentative, population growth could have resulted in more contact between bands as the ranges over which they moved, hunted, and collected plants grew closer together. Growing proximity may have incentivized strategies to mediate communication with neighbors, like exchange networks and signs of social group identity, like personal ornaments. Greater population density may have limited their movement and ability to procure raw material for stone tools. Under this constraint, a technique to produce tools more efficiently, such as bipolar napping, might have been advantageous. Finally, greater communication between foraging bands may have facilitated the transfer of information and ideas, allowing for the spread of this technology. Against this theory lays the fact that the climate during the transition to the late Stone Age was not very favorable, and in fact quite dry in Africa except for the southern part of the continent. So if there was an increase in population size, its cause is not evident. What is clear is that archaeologists view this period as a turning point in human prehistory. 
around the same time that humans migrated out of Africa permanently, they also invented new forms of symbolic expression and abandoned ancient technologies rooted at our species' origin. Whether it was caused by a growing population, a revolutionary invention, or an evolutionary change, the basic features of human society that would define the peak of the last ice age had arrived. We're not quite done with the Middle Stone Age yet, and in our next episode we move up to Northern Africa. There, we'll explore the trajectory of Homo sapiens on the margin of the Sahara, and trace the initial, failed attempts of our species to move out of the African continent. This has been our prehistory. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider visiting this podcast Patreon page and becoming a contributor, so that I can continue bringing you our prehistory.